Matthew chapter number 13, continuing uh, to look at these parables that we find here in this chapter. And this morning we'll be looking at the thought uh, of the futility of false religion, the futility of false religion. This is the seventh parable uh, in this chapter, and these parables are all uh, given concerning the kingdom of God. And if we were to ask what is the kingdom of God, what does that refer to? Uh, that is referring to uh, either we can see it as the church or we can look at it as Christianity as a whole. Definitely the application can be made both ways. And so we see that these parables are all given uh, concerning the kingdom of God. We've seen the parable of the sower. We've seen the parable of the tares among the wheat. Uh, we saw the parables that illustrated the power of faith uh, and the deadliness of sin uh, in the work of God. Uh, we have considered the value of the gospel when we saw the parable of the hidden treasure. And then we saw also the parable uh, of the pearl of great price. And now today we're going to look at the final parable uh, which is given in this chapter concerning the kingdom of heaven. And in this parable, Jesus combines the message of the previous parables in an illustration of the coming judgment at the end of the world. So we're going to read in Matthew 13, starting in verse number 47 and read down through verse number 50. The Bible says, starting in verse 47 of Matthew 13, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full they drew to shore and sat down and gathered in the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire, there shall be welling and gnashing of teeth. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that we have, Lord, to come to your house. Lord, I thank you for each person that is here. Now, Lord, that has come together for the purpose... A Lord of singing, of fellowshipping, and Lord of listening to your word. Father, I pray that you will use the message this morning. I pray, dear Father, Lord, that it'll open our eyes. I pray it'll open our hearts. I pray, dear Lord, that it'll challenge. And Father, I pray if there be any here amongst us that are lost, oh Lord, that it will convict them of their sin. And Lord, convince them of their need to turn to you as Savior. Father, I pray. I pray that you be with the children's program downstairs, be with those that are working there. And Father, I pray that you be with us throughout this morning. In Jesus' name we do pray, amen and amen. As we look at this parable here in verse 47 down through verse number 50, we see the parable of the fishing net or the parable of the dragnet, some have called it. But Jesus, once again, is using something that people would have been familiar with to illustrate a truth about the kingdom of God. As we look at this parable, we see several similarities to the previous parables. And so I want to take a few minutes this morning and look at some of the similarities uh, between the parables. The first thing that we see here is that the gospel goes out. The gospel has gone out. The gospel has been made available. This is illustrated by a net being cast into the sea. This is illustrating the gospel going out. This was also seen in the parable of the sower and that the seed was spread upon the ground. This was an illustration of the gospel going out. These two parables clearly illustrate that the gospel has been given. The gospel has been made available. The gospel 
people has touched and is touching the lives of men and women. The gospel is presenting people with an opportunity to hear and to respond to the truth that Jesus is the only way of salvation. This gospel net illustrates that the gospel has gone out. Another similarity between this parable and others in this passage is not only has the gospel gone out, but we see that the gospel gathers of every kind. Now we've seen this as we looked at the other parables. We've seen in the parable of the sower. That is the sower sowed the seed. Some seed fell upon stony ground. Some seed fell upon hard ground. Some seed fell upon thorny ground. And some seed fell upon good ground. We've seen that as the sower sowed the seed that the response was different. Some did not respond at all. Some responded temporarily. Some believed and became a child of God as they received the seed. So we see that the gospel gathers every kind. We also saw this in the parable of the tares among the wheat, that there are those who are born again, they are those who are believers, but that the devil himself, the Bible clearly taught this, the devil himself will plant unbelievers in among the believers to cause problems in the work of God. They will exist in the church, they will exist in Christianity as a whole. They will exist in the lay people. They will exist in the leadership. There are those who are pretenders that the devil has planted but who are part of Christianity as a whole. When you and I look at Christianity as a whole, we are unable to identify many times who is and who is not a true believer. So that we see that the gospel has gone out. We see that the gospel has gathered of every kind. Here in, in this parable, we see that the Bible says that the net gathered every kind. The gospel has gone out. The gospel has gathered every kind. But then a third similarity we see in this parable to others in this passage is the separation that will take place in the end. I've referred to this as the final division. In the parable of the tares and wheat, if you want to back up to verse number 40, we'll, we'll read this. Jesus says this in verse 40, starting in verse 40, as therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. If we look then at the parable of the net, in verse number 48 it says, Which when it was full they drew to shore, and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. 
When we come to this seventh parable, it's as if Jesus spake this parable to drive home the points that he had made in the previous parables. The points that he had made is that the gospel is available, but only those who receive and believe the gospel will be saved. But in the kingdom of God, there will be many who profess Christianity. There will be many who have been exposed to the gospel there will be many who have put their faith in something other than the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the scope of Christianity will be full of many people who for one reason or other feel that when the end of time comes they are going to heaven but they have put their faith in the wrong thing and there is coming a final division there is coming a time when God will separate those those who truly believed from those who did not. And there will be a final decision. Many times whenever we preach about the end of the world in our minds, when we visualize the end of time, we see two lines formed. And here in this line, at least this is how I visualized it in my mind. Maybe you didn't this way. But over here in this line is all the saved people. And over here in this line is all the lost people. And we are sad and grieved that the lost people are going to hell. But we're rejoicing that all the saved people are going to heaven. Many times we visualize something similar to that in our mind. And that will be heartbreaking. But what's going to be far more heartbreaking is all the people who think they're supposed to be standing in the saved line. And Jesus is saying, depart from me, your worker, of iniquity. This parable drives home the truth that there is coming a day when we'll know whether your religion was any good or not. It's sad that our churches are filled with people who are putting their hope in the wrong thing. When week after week after week the truth is being Proclaim. This morning as we look at this parable, we're going to be proclaiming the truth. And in proclaiming the truth, we're going to be trying to reveal and expose some of the things that the devil has offered that is going to condemn men to eternal punishment. I pray that you'll be attentive as we look at this passage. When we look at this parable, we see the picture that is painted with the parable. I believe there's two things being presented here by this parable of the fishing net. There's two pictures that Jesus is presenting. The first is that the gospel is available to all, yet everyone will not benefit from the gospel. Well, what a sober truth. The gospel is available to all. There is not one person on earth, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they've done, regardless of how many sins they've committed, it doesn't, there's not one person on earth who the gospel is not available for them. The gospel is available to all. As Brother Hot Rod said, his arms are wide open. He will accept anyone. He will convert anyone. He can turn anybody's life around. He can make a new creature out of any person, no matter how 
how bad they've ruined their life. The gospel is available to everyone. There is not one person that God has said you're not able to accept to have the gospel presented to you. It is available to all. And there are many, many, many hundreds, thousands of people who have not only, not only is the gospel available to them, but they have heard the gospel. They have been told the gospel. They know that Jesus came. He died. He buried. And He rose again so that their sins could be forgiven. They have heard the gospel. Thousands of people. The gospel's available. They've heard the gospel, but yet they will die and go to a sinner's hell because they refuse to repent and believe the gospel. This parable of the fishing net presents that the gospel is available to all, but not everyone will benefit from the gospel. Not only that, we see a second picture here is that the gospel will affect all, but everyone will not be affected in the same way. Whenever we see the seeds and the sower and the seed, we see that everywhere the seed fell, there was an effect on that soil. Some sprouted, some the birds landed and snatched it up, some, some the heat killed the seed, but every soil was affected. Everyone that hears the gospel will be affected, but not everyone will be affected in the same way. The net went out and it gathered of every kind, but some were put in good vessels and some were disposed of. Everyone that hears the gospel will be affected. In other words, if you have heard the gospel, you are responsible for your response to the gospel. You will be held accountable for how you respond to the truth of the gospel. There is no excuse. If you have heard the gospel, the fact that you have heard it will affect you. The gospel will affect all, but not everyone will be affected the same way. You know, there's many things that people look to for salvation. Of course, the Bible teaches that salvation is by grace through faith. That is how you are born again. There is nothing you can add to it. There is nothing you can take away from it. The only way that you can be born again is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not simply believing that He existed, but putting your trust in Him, trusting your eternity to Him, giving your life to Him fully, wholeheartedly, absolutely, believing what He said enough that you will be willing to be mocked for it. You will be willing to be persecuted for it. You will be willing to be shunned for it because you believe the gospel. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only way of salvation. But for whatever reason, people many times get in their mind that there must be something we can add to this. Now, the Bible does teach that Christians will behave differently than lost people. But Christians don't behave differently from lost people because we're trying to earn our salvation. 
We behave differently because we believe the book. And Jesus said, this is how I want you to act. And so we act like Christians. We do what Jesus says He wants us to do, not because we're trying to get ourselves into heaven, but because we love Him who first loved us. That's why we act different, because it demonstrates that we love Jesus. Well, I'm telling you what, there's a trend going around in our world today that says, don't tell me how I'm supposed to act. Don't tell me how I'm supposed to live. I only, I only answer to Jesus. You're exactly right. You only answer to Jesus and He's way stricter than any preacher will ever be when you ask Him to define what righteousness is. This whole trend, I can live how I want to, look how I want to, dress how I want to, drink what I want to, listen to what I want to, and all this nonsense because I only answer to Jesus. It sounds to me like you don't care what Jesus thinks. You think that you're making an affront against a preacher. You're not making an affront against a preacher. The preacher's simply trying to get you to recognize that if you want to have a good relationship with Christ, you're going to live the way Christ wants you to. That's all the preacher's trying to get you to recognize. You think you're making an affront against the preacher. But whenever you say, I can live like the world, look like the world, talk like the world, act like the world, and Jesus don't care, I have a hunch you don't know my Jesus. Because that's not who he is. Anyway, back to what I was saying. We somehow get in our mind. We somehow get in our mind that I have to do all these good things in order to get to heaven. That's how I get to heaven is by doing good. And it's funny how we work the scales, isn't it? Because we can live like a devil all week long and then give $10 at the church and we think Jesus is going to let us into heaven for that. We can talk bad about our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers, uh, but we take a pie to the little old lady that lives next door and we think Jesus is going to let us into heaven for that. I tell you, we got our scales all mixed up. But somehow we think that by doing good is how I earn heaven. No, you don't, you don't earn heaven. There is nothing you can do. You see, Jesus, God, demands purity. He demands righteousness. In order to enter into heaven, He demands 100% absolutely perfectly clean. You say, well, I only told one little white lie. You know what? You are no longer perfectly clean. And the Bible says that that's a sin. And the Bible says the only way you can get that sin cleaned off so that you're perfectly white again is death. Only way. You only told one little white lie and you have been honest for the last 67 years. Don't matter. That one little white lie is still marring your slate and the only thing that will get it off your slate is death. Now either you can die and spend eternity in hell because of your imperfection, or you can put your trust in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who died in your place that He could wash you and make you clean and present you spotless before the Father so that an imperfect creature could spend eternity in heaven. That is how it works. That is how it works. But there's a third thing that's gained popularity in our day that people think get them into heaven. I'm not sure where this one came from, 
But it is probably the most dangerous of all. Some folks think that works redeems. And that's false. We know it's false. But the one that has called on and is rampant even in churches, although we don't state it the way that I'm going to state it, we believe it. And that is this, that death is the redeemer. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor John? Have you been to a funeral lately? It don't matter how wicked they live. It don't matter how ungodly they was. It doesn't matter how they treated the Savior their entire life. It doesn't matter if they never darkened a church door. They could have been a drunk, beat their wife, abandoned their children. It doesn't matter how they live. You go to the funeral home and the family, the friends, the minister, the funeral home staff, everybody will say, sorry for your loss. He's in a better place now. No, he's not in a better place. Sorry for your loss. At least he's with the Savior. Uh Uh-uh. He's not with the Savior. But you know what? We have come to believe this nonsense that death redeems and we go to the funeral homes and we put every stinking sinner in heaven regardless of how they lived and regardless of how they acted. And although we don't state that death is a redemption, we teach our younger generation that death redeems and they grow up thinking that God is too kind and God is too loving and God is too nice to ever put anybody into hell. And so it don't matter how you live. When it comes to the end, we all get to go to heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. And this passage of Scripture makes it very clear that there are going to be those that thought they were going to heaven. There will be cast where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see here that the gospel is available to all, but not all will benefit. The gospel will affect all, but not everyone's affected the same way. But then I want to take and that was the picture of the parable. I want to take and consider the message of this parable. I believe there's a twofold message found in this parable, and we'll take a few minutes and look at that this morning. First, I believe that Jesus is driving home that there will be a final separation. We've already looked at this a little bit, but we want to clarify a little bit of what we're talking about here. Right now, there is a large mixture who identify as Christians. And I hit on this a lot, but let me just interject it again. Just because somebody says they're a Christian doesn't mean you should be following their teaching. A few weeks ago, when we looked at the tares and the wheat, I preached, against, I preached on this uh, pretty thoroughly, and I've had several people ask me, well, Pastor John, can you give me a list of who I should and shouldn't listen to? And I appreciate their concern and their interest in wanting to know who is sound and who is not, but honestly, there's no way I can keep up with all the false teachers that are coming to the forefront in these days. They're coming faster and faster and faster. There's no way I can keep up. So you want me to tell you how to know whether or not you should listen to somebody? It's take the time to check them against the book. Christians, American Christians, probably all Christians, I just know American Christians. I know a few not Americans, but mostly Americans. We have a tendency to just listen to what people say and never take the time to check it. 
You want to protect yourself against false teachers? Get in the book. Brother C said this morning, read it for yourself. That's, that's how you do it. Read it for yourself. Get in the book. Check them. That's how you find out. But there's a large group of people, a large mixture who identify with Christians. There are varieties of people who claim to have the truth. There are many who have developed their own interpretation of what the Bible says, what it means. And so we have a lot of people that are producing a lot of different things who all claim to be Christian. Not only that, there are those who have manipulated the gospel for financial gain. There are those who have manipulated the gospel for popularity. They have no interest whatsoever in your soul or where you end up when you die. They are simply trying to become popular. They manipulate the gospel to use it as a means. There are those who have leveraged the gospel to gain power and position and they have leveraged the gospel in a way to give themselves authority over people that they should not have. Many others have simply latched on to traditional beliefs that are not found anywhere in this book. But all of these people make up what you and I see as Christianity. Large variety, a large mixture of people, all of these groups are in the fishing net, so to speak. They all claim to be a part of Christianity, but there is coming a day when the net will be emptied. There is coming a day when the good will be saved and the bad will be cast away. I want to point out a few things about this final separation. First, this final separation is absolute. This final separation is absolute. What do I mean by that? I mean it will be complete. It will be thorough. There are no uh, cracks that someone can slip through. There's no loopholes that someone can find to avoid the penalty for trying to obtain heaven some other way. There are no ways around. He who is overseeing this final separation is omnipotent. He knows everything and there is no one who will be able to get around. It is absolute. The Bible says in Matthew 7 verse number 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Verse number 22 says this, many will say to me in that day, this is the day that we're talking about, this final separation, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. This final separation is absolute. It is complete. It is thorough. And if you have trusted in anything except the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, you will be found out on that day. It's a final separation. But in addition to being absolute, we also see that this final separation is established. What do I mean by that? I mean that the rules have already been set. You ever show up to play a game of pickup baseball or pickup basketball, football, whatever it is, and you show up and, and you realize that uh, you don't have as many people as you thought you was going to have, and so you start changing the rules? 
It, you alter the rules to fit the situation. Have you ever went to an acquaintance's house, somebody you don't know well, but you're getting to know them, you, you, you're developing a friendship, and you go to their house, and you sit down to play a game of Monopoly or a game of Uno, and you find out that they have completely different rules than you ever heard of. Who taught you to play Monopoly? Wow. We tend to make rules to fit the situation. That's what we as people like to do. But when it comes to this final separation, the rules have already been set. It's already established who is going where. It's already final. There will be no loopholes. There will be no allowances. There will be no alterations. God has established uh, that, the only, that only those who believe on the Savior and put their trust in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ will be eligible to enter the portals of glory. In that day, the judge of righteousness will reveal that your dependence on your good works was not good enough. He will reveal that your reliance on tradition was not enough to get you into glory. He will reveal that not everyone who passes away is immediately forgiven of their sins. He will reveal that only those who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will be allowed to enter the portals of glory. You say, Pastor John, isn't that unfair? No. It's not unfair at all because he has made it so abundantly clear how to get into heaven. Those, the Bible uses the word ignorant, those who miss are willfully ignorant. In other words, they have made up an excuse that quieted their conscience so they could continue to live the way they wanted to live. In other words, they have lied to themselves. They have denied the truth, and they have convinced themselves that they have devised another way that will work better. But in that day, it will be made evident. Thirdly, I want to point out that this final separation, not only is it absolute, not only is it established, but this final separation is permanent. This final separation is permanent. There is no coming back. There is no second chance. People say, but isn't God a God of second chances? Yes, and he's giving you your second chance now. There is no second chance after this day. There's no opportunity to correct your rejection of the Savior. The time to accept Jesus is now. The time to turn from yourself and submit your life to Christ is now. Because after that final separation, there will not be another window of opportunity. It's a permanent separation. So we see in this message of this parable, first we see the twofold message. First is the final separation. But then secondly, in the message of this parable, we see that Jesus is emphasizing a future judgment. You see, the separation is not the end. There is a judgment that follows the separation for all those who have rejected the Savior the final separation divides the lost from the saved. It separates the believers from the pretenders. But following the separation is an eternal judgment for all those who for whatever reason chose to reject Christ. I want to point out two things about this future judgment. First, I want to tell you that this future judgment is a place 
of physical misery. Many times we try to mysticize the afterlife. Whether we speak of heaven or whether we speak of hell, we try to make it mystical, and in doing so, we take some of the horror of it off of our soul. But it's not mystical. It is very, very real. And a future judgment that is coming is a place of physical misery. In Luke chapter number 16 and verse number 23, we're looking at the story of the rich man who rejected Christ and went to hell. And in Luke 16, verse number 23, this is speaking of the rich man after his death. It says, and in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torment. A literal place, a literal man, a literal physical response and in hell. Don't let anyone tell you that hell is not a real place. The Bible makes no bones about it. The Bible nowhere indicates that this is some kind of typology. The Bible makes it clear that this is a physical place and all who reject Christ will find themselves in this place and in hell. He lifted up his eyes. He physically opened his eyes and the Bible says he was in torment and he called out and listened to what he said and he cried and said Father Abraham have mercy on me and send Lazarus this was the beggar that he made fun of send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame it's a place of physical memory misery there's coming a final separation, but following that separation is a future judgment for all who reject Christ right now. You might have quieted your conscience. You might be finding peace in this religion you have created for yourself, but in that day, there will be no peace. It is a place of physical memory, but not only is it a place of physical misery, but secondly, we see that it's a place of perfect Mental state. It's bad enough that I'm being tormented, but I'm completely aware not only of what is going on in my body at that time, but I'm also completely aware of what went on before I got there. Look here, look back in Luke 16, 23. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torment, seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Look at verse number 25, that first phrase. But Abraham said, Son, remember. Hmm. Son, remember. Remember 
when you rejected Christ? Remember what La that you saw a testimony in Lazarus that you refused to believe? Uh, remember, son, remember your past life. Uh, remember the opportunities. Remember the life that you lived. Uh, remember, and all those memories come back. Uh, this place of future judgment uh, is a place uh, that will have a perfect uh, mental condition. Uh, in hell, you will remember. There are several things that you will remember while you're in hell. In hell you will remember every time you rejected the Savior. If you are here this morning and you have never accepted the Lord Jesus as your Savior, if you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're here this morning and you've been depending on your good works or you've been hoping that Jesus would just let you in when you passed over, if you're here this morning and you do not accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you get to hell. You will remember this service. You will remember this opportunity. You will remember that you turned your back on a God who had made a way of salvation. You will remember every time that Jesus made himself available and you turned your back on him as you're being tormented in a flame. You will remember every time that he made himself available to you. Not only will you remember every time you rejected the Savior, but you will remember every opportunity you were offered. Every gospel track you were handed, every flyer that came in your mailbox, every time a neighbor or a friend invited you to church, every opportunity that you ever had will come flooding back to your mind and you will realize that not only were you aware of the Savior, but He had given you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to put your trust in Him and you will remember every one of them. Not only that, but you will remember every person who pointed you Christ as you're falling through the flames tormented you'll remember those people that said I'm praying for you You'll remember those people who said, don't, don't, don't go there, don't do that. You'll remember those people that said, I'm afraid you're going the wrong direction. You'll remember those people that said, I wish you'd come back to church. You'll remember all those people who pointed you to Christ. You'll remember every one of them. and You will realize that you turned you're back on an opportunity. It's not God's fault that you're in hell. It's your fault. Not only are there several things you'll remember, but there's also several things you will realize. In hell, there's several things you'll realize, and you may not have ever considered that you would realize these things in hell, but you will. In hell, you will realize the goodness of God. You say, well, that's the last thing I'd think of when I'm being burnt. No, because in hell you will realize that he did everything he could to point you to himself. You will look back through your life and you will see all the sin. You will see all the wickedness. You will be aware of the righteousness of God and you will understand that God in His goodness extended His offer of salvation over and over and over and over again. And as you're burning in those flames, you who have rejected Christ during your life on earth will become aware of the goodness of God that He would be so kind to you and allow you to live as long as he did despite your wicked lifestyle. You will, be, you will realize the goodness of God. You will realize the long-suffering of God who just continued to let 
someone who was mocking him live as long as they lived. The long-suffering of God. You will realize the mercy of God. You will know without a doubt in hell that you deserve to be where you are because you will be very aware of all the times that God bestowed his mercy on you. Not only will you remember, not only will you realize, but in hell there's some things you're going to regret. Matter of fact, there's more than we can list this morning. But I believe in hell you're going to regret worshiping the world. You're going to regret worshiping this world. You say, Pastor John, what do you mean worshiping the world? You know what keeps people from accepting Christ? is the love of the things of this world. You know what keeps people from, from giving their all to Christ? The love of the material possessions of this world. You know what keeps people from giving themselves and accepting salvation? What keeps them held back is because they're afraid they're going to miss out on something this world has to offer. People are going to die and go to hell because they worship this world. They are too concerned about this life and what they can obtain in this life and what they can make of themselves in this life. They're too focused on this life. They're too focused on their personal image. They're too focused on their personal possessions. They're too focused on their influence with other people than they are concerned with eternity and there's going to be people in hell who are regretting that they worshipped this world. Not only will you regret that you worship this world, but you'll regret that you worked for temporal things. In hell, the temporal status of this world will be ever evident to you. And those who have rejected God because they wanted to give their life to obtaining temporal material things, in hell, they will regret that they worked for temporal things now that they grasp the seriousness of eternity. You see, our time on earth, we have a hard time understanding this. Our time on earth was not given to us to make something of ourselves. Our time on earth was given to us to prepare for eternity. Now, there's things that we have to do in order to live out our lives on earth. But whenever our focus becomes pursuing these temporal things, we miss the whole goal of why we're here on earth. You're on earth for the simple purpose of preparing for eternity. And when you are burning in hell, you will realize with full understanding that you wasted your opportunity pursuing material things. And you will regret that you lived your life that way. But I believe more than either of those in hell, you will regret that you wasted your opportunity to accept Christ. Memory after memory. That was God. That was God that protected me in that car wreck. It wasn't that I was tough. 
It was God that healed me of that sickness. It wasn't that I was a resilient human being. That was God. That was God that had the Gideons put that Bible in that motel room. That was God that had somebody give me a gospel track. That was God that had that street preacher proclaiming the gospel that I walked by. That was God who was interfering with my life and trying to get my attention. That was God. That was God trying to get my attention. I was so focused on myself. I was so focused on my ambitions. I was so focused on my dreams that I didn't recognize that it was God. But now that I'm here in hell, I realize that God showed His mercy over and over and over and over because he wanted to see me be saved and here I am and I regret that I wasted my opportunity to accept Christ because it's permanent and this is where I'll exist forever remembering and being reminded that I rejected the Savior Jesus gives a parable, and in this final parable about the kingdom, he drives home the most important truth. And that truth is this, to make your calling and election sure. You don't need to be going through life hoping so, maybe so. You can know without a shadow of a doubt that your eternity is in heaven. You can know without a shadow of a doubt that you have been born again. You can know without a shadow of a doubt that the Holy Ghost of God has moved in on the inside of you and that you are a child of God and you can go through life knowing that when this time comes, when this final separation comes, that you will be spending eternity in heaven. You can know. But many, many, many people, and I fear even maybe some in this congregation, are going through life hoping so. I'm telling you, you're risking a lot to hope so. You're risking a lot to hope so. There are people who are smart enough not to spend their life savings on the lottery. But they're not smart enough to make sure that they're going to spend their eternity in heaven. I'm telling you what, this is way more crucial than your life savings. This is the hope of eternity. And you can know where you'll spend eternity. I'm